0: a couple years ago i was sitting down uh, taking a break from my job at the athletic media company and uh, i was drinking a non-alcoholic beer from athletic brewing and i thought uh, hey this this could be a partnership because i'm i'm an ad wizard and so i put those two things together and Took a couple years, but now I get to read ads for Athletic Brewing and uh, their non-alcoholic beers. And I'm excited about it. And I'm excited about it because I like the product. I like the product for a variety of different reasons. There are times where I'm uh, the designated driver. And that is it's perfect for me. I don't feel like I'm I'm missing out on a whole lot. There are also times where I'm not the designated driver, but it's going to be a long day of gabbing and I don't necessarily need to have 10 IPAs in a row. So I will mix in an athletic, non-alcoholic beer and I, I feel like I don't miss a beat. And it allows me to pace myself uh, the way I want to do it. It's perfect for beach days, music festivals, and baseball games, camping, late nights. Uh, they have a ton of different varieties. They have uh, light. They have upside uh, Don golden. They have run wild IPA. They have a hazy IPA. They have summer seasonals. They've got a, a lemon Rattler ripe pursuit. I don't even know what a Rattler is. But now I want to try it. I feel bad that I haven't tried it. So this summer, ask for the only non-alcoholic beer you need to know, Athletic. Head to askforathletic.com to find it near you. And use the code TA2024 to get 15% off your first online order. That's code TA2024 at checkout for 15% off. It's near beer, non-alcoholic beer, and it tastes... Listen, I grew up with some funky ones. Those didn't taste like beer. This tastes like this. This is good non alcoholic beer. Exclusions and conditions apply. Athletic Brewing Company, fit for all times.
1: Welcome back to Full Time with Meg Linehan. You are listening to a show all about women's soccer on The Athletic Podcast Network. I'm Meg, your host, and I'm a national staff writer at The Athletic covering the NWSL and the U.S. Women's National Team. I will be at the two U.S. Women's National Team send-off games in Connecticut this weekend, technically Thursday, today, and Monday, so you know, uh, the joys of driving to Connecticut twice in the span of a few days, plus the Gotham FC game, assuming the weather cooperates. We've also had some wild NWL action with the Orlando Pride, still at the top of the standings through June, and a ton of other news to boot. On today's episode, Katie Donovan of the Sports Innovation Lab is here to talk through their new report at The Fan Project, which asked fans to send in their social media data from Twitter and Facebook, and the team anonymized that data and compared it to other industry data and trends, and recently they released a major report detailing how to best invest in women's sports. Now that there's a lot to dig into. This episode is hopefully helpful if you have read the report or not, but I feel like if you are listening to this podcast, you at least have a passing interest in the future of women's sports. Data like this is definitely crucial to figuring out the next steps, Again, you've heard me talk a lot about that at The Athletic. Again, we've just hired a second full-time women's soccer writer. Part of that is because of the data. So before we get into all of this, again, your reminder to subscribe to The Athletic at theathletic.com slash full-time. We have so much in the works on so many different fronts, but with the Olympics coming up, we've got a ton planned and we'll be working closely with our UK desk to bring as much coverage of the women's tournament to you as possible. It is July. It's the perfect time to subscribe if you haven't already. Theathletic.com slash full-time. Let's start with some news from last night. Olivia Moultrie has finally signed an NWSL contract with Portland Thorns FC, and it is for three years, plus an option. This has been quite the legal saga, but the judge in the case gave a very clear deadline that would ensure Moultrie could get on a plane as the Thorns travel to Louisville for a game on Saturday, and she will actually be able to get on that plane. Paul Tenorio has been leading the way on the coverage on this one for us at The Athletic, and for more, we've got a headline, plus I popped on our breaking news podcast to explain it all. Angel City FC unveiled their new crest on Wednesday. Now, this one is obviously a little hard to explain in the podcast format, but Steph Young has the story at The Athletic. I highly recommend that you read it. The Zone has acquired the global rights to UEFA's Women's Champions League from 2021 until 2025. For the first two seasons of the cycle, every single match from that new group stage on will be streamed live and free on YouTube. For the second two seasons from 2023 on, the zone will shift games onto their OTT platform, but 19 will still be streamed free on YouTube. I have plenty more on this at The Athletic. Now, last week, it was all about the Olympics roster for the U.S. Women's National Team, and on Wednesday, we started to hear some rumblings that the IOC has actually decided to change how they approach alternates for this tournament. According to reporting from the AP's Annie Peterson and Rob Harris, the roster will expand to 22 players, but it will still be limited to 18 on game day rosters. This could mean, however, that Lynn Williams makes a game day roster if Tobin Heath isn't quite ready yet, or Katarina Macario steps in for Julie Arts. I asked U.S. Women's National Team Head Coach Flacco Andonovski about this on Wednesday's Match Day Minus One Zoom. Here's what he had to say, quote, We got word from the IOC that we will have a little flexibility on the roster. We're very happy about it, and as of right now, we're just waiting to see a little more detail on what all of the rules and regulations are going to look like, so stay tuned. All right, Katie Donovan is the Vice President of Data and Insights for the Sports Innovation Lab. She's here to help walk us through the newest report, which is all about growing women's sports and was driven by all of this fan data they collected, so let's just dig right on in. All right, Katie, I wanted to start, maybe just first, if you could give folks an introduction to who you are, what your background is, um, maybe what the Sports Innovation Lab is, all of that kind of fun stuff, just to kind of lay the groundwork for when we actually get to the FAN project and this report.
2: Absolutely. Um, So I will start with Sports Innovation Lab. We are a tech-focused organization that is really doing a lot of data analysis and understanding around how technology is changing fan behavior. So ultimately, and we've been in the market for the past five-ish years, just shy of five years, um, but a lot of the research, a lot of what we have implemented with everybody in the market from the NFL to Google to Coca-Cola to Nike, it's really, it's kind of, it's spanned the breadth of, of who interacts with the sports industry. Um, We are focused on giving them a lens into who their fan is, how their fan is behaving, and how they can translate that into revenue. Um, And then the quick and dirty on me (laughs) and stepping into this role with them, I've been with Sports Innovation Lab um, just since January. So I am a ripe six months into it. Uh, Lots of fun but have spent the past 15 plus years working in data technology um, through a number of different kind of avenues, whether that be through entertainment or music, and now coming into sports. And the last probably decade plus of that has really been focused on understanding and analyzing fan behavior, specifically in those different environments, So whether it was fans of SpongeBob when I was with Viacom for a few years, uh, whether it is music fans when I worked with Spotify, um, or now sports fans. Um, And I started my own company, a nonprofit called Shia Sports, um, that focused on increasing fan engagement with women's sports, which was a very natural transition now into the work that I'm doing with Sports Innovation Lab.
1: Perfect. All right. So let's shift over to the fan project, which I know I think I had mentioned it on this podcast as a thing that people can do. I know we have spoken about the NWCL supporter survey that I do at the Athletic, right? Like women's sports fans I think are very willing to say, like, please take my opinions, my data, (laughs) my everything, right? Because everyone is just kind of going like how do we how do we fix like kind of the lack of data that yeah. everyone has going in. And, and I really wanted to read, so Angela Ruggiero, who is also a part of Sports Innovation Lab, also, you know, just kind of one of the biggest USA hockey players to to play the game. Yes. But she's got this introduction in the report and I really love this one sentence with, as a four times Olympian and CEO of Sports Innovation Lab, I did not want to publish another opinion piece or demand investment from corporate social responsibility budgets as the, quote, right thing to do. And that is a line that really stuck with me because I think that has been kind of the frustration for so long of just like, what has the argument been (laughs) for investment in women's sports? And and there has been a lot of real pushback of this kind of cause. Like, oh, it's a cause that you should care about. And so where do you think the Fan Project and this big report that that the group just released shifts now that narrative away from the right thing to do and just like, oh no, this is actually a thing that you should be doing because it makes sense.
2: I mean, legitimately when we set out to do this, the original intent was to unlock the business case for women's sports for so many years. And you have been at the center of this and these conversations within the women's sports kind of side of the sports industry. A lot of the conversations have been based around anecdotal information, moments in time, rather than consistent and data-driven approaches to those conversations. Or it's quite frankly been based on gut instinct, We've walked into pitches and I've done this myself. I've walked in asking for sponsorship within this space and gone, I know that this is here. I know that this is right. I know that you're going to see this return on investment, but no, I don't have the numbers to concretely show you that that's what happens. You're just going to have to believe me. And so a lot of the industry has been saying a lot of the things that are in this report but they've been saying it from this gut instinct or this anecdotal place and and using that to prove their worth. What we did and kind of the novel approach to it was, as you said, fans of women's sports are motivated to help this space. They are loyal to this space. They are ingrained in it. They want to help. And so when we put the call out to say, Hey, you know that your data is being used all over the place. You know that you're getting targeted for all of these ads some of which is great like everybody loves a good instagram and every now and then but like most of it is just stuff that you don't care about it's stuff that you're not personally motivated by why not have your data get used for something that is finally going to really have a monetary impact on this space and they responded in hundreds, <laughs> in, in literally 10 million data points worth of response in just a very short amount of time. I mean, we were collecting data over about a two month period of time in total. Um, and And to get that many data points to be able to analyze that much, for us, this was a proof of concept to see if that response would come through. The fact that it did The fact that we were able to analyze as much as we were has now unlocked a massive opportunity and massive go forward for us to really take this to the next level. And that all harnesses around the business potential.
1: In terms of the response that you got from fans, but also there were leagues and other kind of institutions as well that also partnered Sports Innovation Lab. But were you surprised? I mean, I feel like probably neither of us were really surprised that this was happening. But just in terms of, I mean, the data goes back to 2007, right? It seems like there was also a pretty even split between men and women in terms of what you were able to to get. I know we're going to talk about demographics a little bit later on. But just in terms of response, was there anything that stood out to you from the actual data collection part of this
2: process? The biggest surprise for me was genuinely how far back it went um, and how robust the data was when we started looking back at those years, you know, five plus years back. Like, I, and I've said this a couple of different times, like, I for sure would have expected that just engagement two or three years ago, 2017, 2018, like we started to see this kind of real uptick in engagement with women's sports. I definitely was expecting to see behaviors starting. really show up in the data around those years, to have it go back as far as it did, to be able to track these different behaviors, these different moments in time as far back as 2007 and to be able to see in a longitudinal fashion the evolution of how fans are behaving and engaging with this space over that long of a period of time taught us so much and at such a, a level and a depth that we felt really confident in being able to go to the market with the report that we did. And again, being able to put real data backed assertions into this space that we feel can move that business case forward.
1: Okay. So next, there's the concept of a fluid fan yes, is at the heart of this report, and I think as you describe it, probably every single person listening to this podcast is just going to go like, oh, yeah, that's what I do, right? But could right. You maybe right. let's <laughs> lay the foundation of like, what, what is a fluid fan?
2: So a fluid fan is this concept of a fan that Sports Innovation Lab has actually been tracking for the past four years. And they put out their report on fluid fandom um, actually a couple of years ago. So it's based on this ongoing research that they've done. The idea behind a fluid fan is that there's this evolution that has taken place in the marketplace where we've gone from kind of the early 1900s and this age of the local fan where you didn't really, there wasn't really broadcast TV. So you're really newspapers and radio as kind of your, your media forms, or otherwise you were going to the game. You were a local fan, you were going to your local team. That's when kind of the business of sports sort of started to formulate around this local fan. Move into like the 1950s-ish and you start to see the increase of broadcast TV. We start to move into this age of the global fan where you have broadcast and satellite really driving a lot of fan engagement. Now, all of a sudden you're not just restricted to the team that's in your local market. You can watch teams that are in other parts of the country or even other parts of the world just as easily. So now we start to see this shift that happens from, hey, I am a local fan of just this one team to now I'm saying, yes, I'm a fan of this team, but I'm also a soccer fan. I'm also a baseball fan. And so there are these broader kind of league level followings that start to happen with the fan base. Now, what we're moving into is this age of the fluid fan. And the catalysts for change here are really around the adoption of the smartphone the internet in general, and how we're seeing the OTT space really expand and streaming technology, social media, the digital kind of connected always on, always omnipresent type of space. And so now the fan base is shifting and behaving differently because of that. So yes, there's still very much consuming at that team and league level. They're still saying, Hey, I'm a soccer fan. They're still saying I'm a Gotham FC fan, but now they're also sitting in there and going, I will follow Kaylin Sheridan wherever she goes, whatever, whichever team she goes to, like I'm going to be real conflicted on whether or not I'm choosing team USA or team Canada. Like there's that level of following that is now happening and level of engagement and we have moved concretely into this space of the creator. So whereas before you were just really more of a spectator or a consumer, now the fan is definitely those things, but they're also creating the content themselves. They're directly engaging in these social spaces.
1: Hey, this is Andrew Schlecht from The Athletic. The NBA Finals begins on June 6th and we have you covered at The Athletic NBA Show. Join us
0: Monday through Friday to hear voices like Zach Harper, David Aldridge, Marcus Thompson, Dave DeFore, Sam Amick, and many more. We will have instant reaction shows after every finals
1: game, plus podcasts to take you behind the scenes in between games. Listen to The Athletic NBA Show wherever you get your podcasts. I definitely want to talk to you about the creator part a little bit, a little yes. bit later, but just because it, I, I feel like everyone who is in this space started in that kind of like every single person in terms of my own, like it just, it makes complete, complete sense. But first I want to talk about that shift of traditional approaches to how sports make money to what we're, what we're looking at now. And the two things that I really took away from this report were the digital part of it, right? The fact that everything is now, our instinct is to turn to our phones, honestly, right? Yeah. Um, Part two of that is also the storytelling part. And obviously that is a a bias for me as someone who is paid to do that, right? Rightfully. (laughs)
2: um,
1: I, I was hoping that we could maybe talk through the role of storytelling because it is just more than what I do, right? That there is storytelling that's happening at the league level, at team level, at player level, right? That this is kind of the evolution of content itself, right? And that some of these lines are starting to get blurred between what we consider content and what we consider coverage in a way. Yeah,
2: and so, and I mean, this goes really to the core of what we put out in this report say there is this evolution of a monetization model that is happening within the sports space. And the benefit, because for so long, fans of women's sports have been relegated to these digital spaces out of necessity. They haven't had the linear deals So they've gone to the streaming networks. They've been forced into those spaces. They haven't had the big marketing budgets or the big stadiums or these arenas. So they have created their own communities within social media and within these digital ecospheres. So there's this indoctrination that has happened with this fan base that, again, when we look at this data and we go back as far as five or more years ago, we're seeing a fluent, use of these different tech influenced behaviors. Not just a little bit, a lot. Like they are fully indoctrinated. They don't need an education. They know exactly where they're going and they're going to the digital spaces first. Even when linear is available, they're going digital. So there's a really interesting monetization shift that's happening because of that. And what we're calling it is the community-based monetization model because it's this idea that there are these at-scale communities the reddits of the world, sizes of communities that exist in these digital spaces that are continuing to really evolve and encapsulate this fan base. And again, fans of women's sports are the most condensed group of these fluid fans who are existing in this space because of their indoctrination. So now what we're starting to move towards is saying, okay, how are they existing in this space? If they're this? this early adopter, if you will, of this monetization model, of this digital ecosphere. How are they existing? How are they interacting? What are they interacting with? Storytelling is a big piece of that. We saw, for example, if you look at the WNBA in their 2020 season, 62% of their increases, their bumps in viewership, in linear viewership, were driven by storytelling content, stuff that went beyond the stats, scores, and schedules. It was all around the different aspects of the players as whole people, of the movements that they were talking about, the racial justice movements, the voting movements, the women's empowerment movements. It was the storytelling around that, that quite literally we can see the correlation to those storytelling lines going out and shifts and bumps, major bumps in viewership. So we can see really the importance of that level and that type of content engagement. And then what we're also starting to see, and we broke this down into kind of three areas, produce, distribute, and measure. So produce is really your storytelling lens. Distribution starts to shift away from it just being a linear monopolization, and instead moving into this space where yes, absolutely linear is still going to remain, a part of the play. It is where consistent and accessible coverage can live. But there's also this shift into the OTT spaces, into these digital spaces in, again, a really fluent way. And how are you really optimizing that? And then from a measurement perspective, once you understand storytelling, this great new distribution into these digital spaces and this this omni-channel type of presence, then when you measure that, you have to look at the depth and the quality of that engagement. It's not just about saying, hey, how many eyeballs are on screens or how many buttons are in seats? That's a traditional model. Instead, look at what is the quality of engagement? How are you connecting with purpose-driven or fan value alignment in order to really deepen the engagement? And that directly correlates to increased revenue, increased brand affinity. We have a number of different things within the report that kind of showed those upticks.
1: Yeah, I definitely wanted to to talk about this idea of quality over quantity, because I also think, you know, one of the things that is discussed in here is in terms of like percentage of a game being watched, right? So like more people are tuned in longer to a WNBA regular season game than an NBA playoff game. And part of that is just... You know it, it kind of is simple enough that well nba playoff games are on television if it's an exciting fourth quarter right like you're going to get yeah. people kind of tuning in just to like i mean i do it all the time right like if i see twitter popping off i'm like well i guess i should put that on like right. <laughs> you <Right>. know <laughs> like i i guess i should know what is happening right <laughs> at the moment um but in terms of like the depth of people watching but also i think one of the real things is for you know what using an nba example right like i grew up a boston celtics fan so i'm going to be very engaged in watching boston celtics games i still might not watch all four quarters but like it's going to be more than me tuning into you know the hawks playing right now in the playoffs whereas i feel like and this is again like where we talk about this kind of anecdotal thing of for NWSL people for instance they're going to if the if the game is on and it's on a time where it doesn't overlap with another game they're probably going to be tuning in it's not just yes. like oh i'm going to be watching my local team it's i will watch any team in this league and have an opinion i will watch playoff games that are do not involve my team i will watch the yeah. championship regardless of who's in it like there is kind of this much wider <laughs> approach to watching the league as a whole.
2: And that is fluid fandom. That is exactly what you're describing is hitting the nail on the head. It's this idea that there is a mission alignment. There is a value alignment with what you're participating in. As a women's sports fan, I want to watch because I want to support women's sports as a whole. I want to support these athletes. I want to support the growth of the game. So there's that value alignment that again, literally translates into dollars. We see, you know, thanks to our partners at Zoom and and some of the data that they supplied for the report, we can see that for brands that have sponsored those, those leagues or those teams, in almost every single case, they have twice the brand affinity with women sports fans as they do with general sports fans. So take Budweiser, for example. They sponsored the NWSL and in our data, that happened in 2019, directly after the Women's World Cup. In our data, we saw an instant jump in behaviors directly correlated to Budweiser. Fans directly engaging with, buying, whatever it might be with Budweiser. That jumped more than a thousand percent year on year. Like that's an insane jump. And they had something like a 2.4 times brand affinity with NWSL fans versus what general fans, the general fan base has an affinity towards Budweiser. So there's this instant uptick for brands that engage in this space, because again, that loyalty, that fan base is the most fluid of all and they are really looking at the entire women's sports ecosphere and going, I want to support that. I want to make sure that it has it has my my affiliation, my support behind it.
1: Yeah, I think it's really interesting because I mean previously Budweiser had sponsored the national team, right? But that right. did not necessarily create the same response. It's not like Budweiser does not sponsor men's sports. They sponsor men's That's sports right. <laughs> all over the place. <laughs> all over <right>? the time.
2: <laughs> That's so right.
1: it is really interesting to see that immediate shift of, even though previously, I mean, they were a longtime sponsor of the women's national team, right? And right. and this is kind of the storytelling of the Budweiser story is they went, okay, well, how do we up the ante yes. ourselves, right? And how yes. do we truly show that this is something that we want to buy into 100%? But then that investment is then rewarded immediately. Yes. Immediately. Yes. I think it's funny because even just on the story that I wrote, you know, last week of just um, the Mua sisters doing the beer with Harpoon. I mean, that yeah. was immediately sold out at the brewery. All yeah. of the merch was sold out. You know, I spoke to their to their CMO for the story, and it was, I think, a day and a half after the beer had technically released, and he was just like, we are blown away. Yeah. <laughs> by their,
2: It's just, that is... And that's, so we define that in the report as the owned by. Behavior. And we look at where are there specific opportunities exactly like that, where fans want to participate through actual purchase, through owning a piece of that experience, owning a piece of whatever their favorite athlete or their favorite sports team or whatever it might be is participating in, or the brands that are directly sponsoring those athletes or those teams. Um, And again, like the power of having this data and having it longitudinally is that we can see over the course of time where behavior spiked based on different influencers. So, and I don't mean like people necessarily like number of different markers or different points. So for example, and again, looking at the Women's World Cup, what we saw was that there was this massive spike in that owned by behavior in the month after the tournament ended. For you and I, that's not a surprise because Nike had a 500% increase in their jersey sales and they sold out and they were you know, completely under-resourced. And it was a real missed opportunity from a monetization standpoint. But we've never had the actual data to correlate that to fan behavior where we show that immediate uptake in real fan behavior. They were looking to own and to buy that, that merchandise. Now we have that. We can do the same thing, like if we look at the WNBA during their bubble season last year, they actually had their biggest uptick during the season because they were doing a lot around their orange hoodie. They were doing a lot around the phenomenal partnership with the Say Her Name campaign and the Breonna Taylor support. There was a lot that they were doing around merchandise during the season. But what's interesting is that even then, when we look at that owned by behavior after the season, it still stayed up at about twice the rate that it was before the season started. So it's creating this continuous flow of behavior even after the season ends. And again, it's having that data that then can translate into, okay, brands, you can now plan appropriately if you're going to do a sponsorship or a partnership with women's sports, here's what you need to consider in terms of how fans are going to react and behave, where you need to be considering your inventory and your inventory costs and associated planning around that, where you need to be considering your marketing dollars and how you appropriately spend before, during or after, even in between seasons or events. There's a number of different things that we can now really unlock with this data. I, I truly
1: hope the inventory planning, <laughs> whoever is in charge of that, definitely yes. is looking at it because every time, every time, every time, every time,
2: and think about it from a men's per- perspective like, if the Lakers win a championship or the Patriots win a Super Bowl, is there ever a shortage of championship no. gear? No, I mean, if, if
1: the Patriots won a Super Bowl, literally, you're driving down to Dick's Sporting Goods. That that night day. right that night an right. hour after the game
2: and it's an jammed. hour after the game yes it's packed yes. all sizes all yes. types yes. everything is there i mean it it's is a very legit.
1: stressful purchasing experience i've done it for like a, a red Sox <laughs> world series so like it is i don't want right. to say it's like a perfect experience it's not but it's not, of course. it exists <laughs> right there is merchandise it's not usually right. the best stuff that happens but like it's there right it's like, there
2: yeah yeah and that's anyway. and but i mean that's like that's yeah. the frustration For fans of women's sports like we're sitting there going take my money take my money and now again the power of what we've done and what we are continuing to do with building out this fan data lake is really being able to put real numbers behind that real data real observational data not what fans said that they were gonna do it's not survey it's what fans actually went and did where did they buy when did they buy what did they buy how can we learn from that to better inventory plan, to better marketing? There's any number of different business objectives that can be achieved with having this data and this access now.
1: Okay, so let's let's talk about this behavior part of it because one of the really interesting things, and I, I tuned in a little bit late to the discussion of this report the day that it dropped, but one of the big kind of questions was like, okay, well, but where's the demographic data? Yes. <laughs> Which isn't really, <laughs> it's not in this report because- it's not what what ultimately this report decided is the demographic stuff is not necessarily the most important stuff that you're going to find out about people it's ultimately the behavior like what they're right. buying what they're listening to what they're creating how they're right. watching how they're learning how they're participating what kind of access they have how like are they going in person are they showing up on site like these are the actual behaviors of fans and yep. for someone who has read actually a, a lot of literature about fan behavior. This is like a giant shift in terms yes. of tossing out. I mean, when when they at, when experts say like build your ideal audience or what does your audience look like, right? Like <laughs> that's the exercise, and they want they yes. want you to create a a person and <laughs> <Yes. laughs> say like this person is wearing this a jersey, like yes, yeah, exactly. But like yes. that is how. Most people who, who work in the space yep. expect you to think about audience is building a fictional person that you are targeting. And instead yes. of actually thinking about what is this
2: person doing? Correct. And this, I want to say, it's a new concept for the sports industry. It is not a new concept for other industries. So this is literally this type of mood based, moment based, behavioral understanding is exactly what I helped to build out at Spotify. So from a fan perspective within the music industry, it is a robust concept. It is something that, and it's not just Spotify, it's Apple Music, it's Pandora, it's Tidal, it's any of them are using this behavior first type of understanding to better connect with fans on their platforms. I mean, that makes sense just from a, sorry to like really go on a Spotify agent, but like,
1: I mean, I I think about Spotify unwrapped, right? And how that's- everyone every every single year I mean I like I am 1000% and I'm a Spotify user like that gets you but also just like the the built playlist like all of that stuff is going to be behavior based and not who is this you know mid-30s lesbian in New York City like they don't really care about that they want (laughs) to know like what am I listening to right now that's right what what do you listen to in the morning like even the the recent thing of like what makes you a unique listener? What are you combining exactly. that no one else is doing? Exactly. Yeah, that's not st- that's not a concept that has traveled into that's the right. sports realm.
2: And it's it, that's exactly right, and it's starting to a part of what we have done with our clients even before my time with Sports Innovation Lab was through this kind of indoctrination of fluid fan behaviors and introducing this to a lot of the leaders in the industry who sit on our leadership board who have already been clients with us. Like we've been teaching them about this behavior first approach. and um, So it's been implemented in, in different ways. Like the NHL and what, what Heidi Browning does in terms of their fan approach is very behavior based. They still absolutely have a layer of demographic understanding that kind of plays a role, but they come at it from a behavior first approach. And that's a really important facet to this report is that we were very intentional about saying, look, if you understand the behaviors first, it's not to completely dismiss the demographics, like the behaviors of Gen Z, versus the behaviors of your 50 plus year old fan are definitely going to be different. We acknowledge that. And as we continue to do work, there's really cool stuff that we have plans to kind of break down into those types of demographic breakdowns and analyze behaviors within different segments of the population, looking at, at behaviors in different ways. But for this initial report, for this foundational piece, it needed to be made really clear that when you do that Fictional profile creation of your ideal fan, that fan doesn't exist. You're targeting all of these like super ideal characteristics, and then you plug it into your Facebook advertising or into your Google ads, and you hope for the best. And instead, what we're saying is, look, if you come at this from a behavior based approach, and again, what other industries are already doing and doing it really well. So this Exists in multi billion dollar companies who have really harnessed this. If you do this well, then what you actually end up doing is connecting with the human behind the screen and understanding the moment and the mentality and the behavior that they're exhibiting at a given time allows you to then say, okay, I understand that you're at a game right now. And you're probably feeling a sense of pride. You're probably wanting to cheer for you not wanting to miss the game so how can we use mobile first technology how can we make concessions faster how can we make your experience at the game a better overall experience that all happens through behavioral understanding
1: I did want to obviously uh, when I was reading this report for the first time, and I, I'm reading and I'm reading, and then I get to the behavior part, and then I was like, "Oh wait, the athletic is here."
2: Yes. <laughs> so,
1: <laughs> and I was just like, "Let me send this to people right now." <laughs> but I, I did want to talk through the the learning part of it, right? Because I yeah. think that that is, you know, they're all of these kind of live in a cycle. Right? Yes. And some of them are happening at the same time. Some of them are happening at particular points, you know, whether it's at the game, before the game, after the game, some of them are happening at the exact same time. You know, like all of that kind yeah. of stuff. They're all interacting with each other, though. Yeah. And some people, I like I personally do not bet on sports. I don't fundamentally understand it. But, you know, that could be happening at the exact same time yeah. as someone else being at a game. All of that yeah. kind of stuff. Yep. Yeah. For the learning part of it, which I think is still a very crucial part of women's sports, simply because, I mean, the 4% coverage number gets tossed around a lot. But where did you see that intersecting with some of these other behaviors?
2: So the learn one was really super interesting to us, because I think you're absolutely spot on, especially at this stage of women's women's sports growth learning about the athletes, having access to consistent content, consistent places to just go and learn about sometimes it's stats. And there's a lot of engagement with stats with, you know, um, sports reference, for example, was another one that really spiked in our data. Like there is a, a real desire to understand more about these athletes, more about the sport itself. Um, that type of learned behavior intersects a lot with listen. So a lot of people are going to the audio platforms. Obviously, podcasts, like what we're doing right now, are a, are a genuine place that people really go. They're, they're participating in those environments. They're going to those environments a lot to learn. So there was a lot of overlap with listen. There was also a lot of overlap with access. So access is all about how are the fans directly engaging with the athletes, themselves. And there was a lot, like we saw Players Tribune, for example, also come up. We definitely saw a lot of the work that you guys are doing around storytelling, around the actual athletes themselves, giving that deeper lens and that deeper look into who these athletes are. Again, stat scores and schedules definitely is a part of it. It's not to be discounted, but there's this equal, if not almost more important storytelling element of like, fill out these athletes as whole people. Who are they as whole people? What are their lifestyles? What are their values? That's what fans are really connecting with. And yes, they still want them to perform. The product on the field, ice, etc., cetera, is still really important, but there's this element of who are they off the court that is equally as, as important.
1: So today there was some news just in terms of big media rights deal, global media rights deal between UEFA for the Women's Champions League and DAZN, which I always struggle to remember that DAZN is um, (laughs) DAZN. (laughs) So part of this, just for for folks who might not have seen it, but part of it is that the first two years are going to be entirely on YouTube every game from the group stage on is going to be free to stream it will also be on the zones platform and then two seasons into this four year the the deal runs the entire length of a champions league cycle they will then start to shift games onto their ott platform and as i was reading this i was like wow okay a lot of this really lines up with what is in this report in terms of kind of the future of where Fan behavior yep. is headed. And I was just wondering your reactions on what you have seen out of today's
2: announcement. So, yeah. So, I mean, absolutely phenomenal announcement um, to have not only that type of media rights deal um, come into fruition and just the level and, and scale of that type of media rights deal, but to have it be led by an OTT space. Um, and by an OTT provider, that is a really incredible, not only step forward for, I think, where the overall sports industry is really headed, but is directly correlating to how we are seeing fans of women's sports engage with content and consume content. So they could not have done a better job of really pinpointing how they know fans of women's sports are going to and have been consuming content and really leaning in. To that. And on top of that, what I really also liked about the deal is that they are committed to increasing other content outside of just the game. So increasing storytelling content, increasing and deepening the content around the athletes themselves, and creating storytelling moments to really highlight who these women are who are playing in these championship games.
1: Okay, so one last question in terms of what fans can take away from reading this report like I, I really think that they should actually be reading it but what can they take away beyond just their own participation how does how does reading this report help them or give them the tools to then influence the leagues the teams and the brands
2: so first and foremost it's where fans go to consume this content so when they have a choice of, turning on different games or of engaging with different content within social media spaces or within OTT environments. And the biggest kind of takeaway is lean into that. Lean into that and demonstrate through those numbers and through the quality of that viewership, how deep and how long fandom is is really sticking around during these events or during these moments, um, building out these communities Demonstrating that that fandom truly exists and is continuing to grow is definitely a big step that that is really going to take the the women's sports space forward from a league brand media tech perspective and from the business side of things. The biggest takeaway is that fans of women's sports are the way to future proof your business. They are the most fluid fans of all today, right now, and they have been for the past five plus years. So they are fluent users of these digital spaces and of really the spaces that are very much going to be the future of the entire sports industry. Understanding them, understanding their behaviors, understanding how to engage with them in ways that return on investment, in ways that that really allow for a brand, for a league, for an entity to take advantage and and really deepen the engagement with fans is going to come from understanding their behaviors right now and responding to that with, again, what we are calling the community-based monetization model, but by really leaning into how you produce, distribute, and measure differently and better within this space.
1: All right, well, that sounds like a perfect ending. Thank you, Katie for joining me on the show, also withstanding some technical difficulties of Wi-Fi in New York City. (laughs) But I appreciate you walking us through this report.
2: My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Thank you to Katie, who really did get to experience the joys of my New York City Wi-Fi failing on a, a truly miserable, hot, humid day here in the city. But to read The Fan Project, the link is in the show notes, or you can visit TheFanProject.co. It's available directly on the website or you can download it as a PDF as well. You can also follow at TheFanProjectCO on Twitter for more as well. Now, one more thing if you are going to the US Women's National Team match tomorrow, Harpoon will have the Team USA beer in the stadium. I usually try not to plug my own stuff in the section of this pod, but Honestly, my story on Sam and Christy Mewis's beer with Harpoon was a story I absolutely loved writing. It is obviously the perfect intersection of my interests. Plus, I got a brewery, uh, a field trip to the brewery out of it to boot. Now, I'm not actually an IPA person, but it's not that hoppy. I promise. The citrus flavor definitely helps on that front. But to compare it to another Harpoon beer, since I love Flannel Friday, which is their big beer in the fall, it's right in that range of hoppiness. If you know what an IBU number is, Flannel Friday is 35, Team USA is 40. That is within, <laughs> that is how I generally judge if I'm going to like a beer or not. Anything under 50 is usually safe for me. So I, it's not a big ipa profile by any stretch highly recommend giving it a try if they sell it in your area anyway as always the call the the home for the show is at fulltimepod.com where you can find links to all of the major podcast platforms if you're enjoying the show as always your reminder that ratings and reviews on apple podcasts do really make a difference and of course one more call subscribe to the athletic and you can support all of our women's soccer coverage you can help with some of this data uh, that link is the full time. My name is Meg Linehan, and you have been listening to Full Time with Meg Linehan. You can always find me on Twitter and Instagram at It's Meg Linehan and my work at The Athletic. Full time doesn't exist without the work and support of senior podcast producer Michael Zimmerman. From The Athletic, I'm Meg Linehan, and thank you for listening.